Hello, everybody. Today, we are talking about how to publish a graphic novel. If you would like to grow as an artist and you can't afford an art class, we've got everything you need here, art prof critiques, tutorials, and professional development. We have a special guest artist today, Clar Ancaza, who is a very prolific artist and actually was in the exact same drawing class at RISD as Kat was. So I feel like this is somewhat of a class reunion. And Clara, you're such a versatile artist. I mean, you do digital illustrations, but you've also made merch and these plant designs. Do you enjoy jumping back and forth between so many projects? Yeah, I think it mostly stems from me wanting to do everything and not being able to decide. So it's kind of like, okay, let me do all of them. And you all know Kat here. Kat has done all kinds of comics, digital illustration. She is now a professor at RISD, teaching in the RISD illustration department. And it's incredible to me that both of you are just a few years out of art school, and yet you both are working on these book deals. Clark, can you give us a quick summary of your stories of the islands? Yeah, so um, my graphic novel is a collection of three stories, which uh, which are based on Indonesian folktales that I grew up with. Um, so it's just a collection of short stories that the overall theme is just it's in Indonesia and it's based on stories I grew up with. And I rewrote it to make them into stories that I actually wished I listened to when I grew up. Because I, I remember as a child, I was like, I, I have a problem with how this is ending. And so this is me being like, this is how I wanted to end. Oh, yes. Agency. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And Kat, your graphic novel is called Nostalgia. What is Nostalgia about in a nutshell? <laughs> nostalgia is about a magical antique shop that sells forgotten memories. And the main character, who you see in the middle, has forgotten who they are and what they look like. And so they must embark on a quest to explore Nostalgia, this antique shop, to discover who they are. I'm curious. Can everybody tell me in the chat, what's your relationship with graphic novels? Did you grow up reading them? Do you want to publish someday? Or do you just like following graphic novelists and seeing the process? Let's talk about where these books began, because it's a huge undertaking to publish a graphic novel. And Clara, yours started when you were still a student at RISD. Yeah, so I knew I really wanted to do an independent study. Um, and at that point, I just loved making comics. So I was like, okay, let me make a long-term project with comics. And I also combined that with my um, wish to like include my own culture into the my work. So I was like, okay, comics about Indonesian folktales. And I also wanted it to have a little touch of feminism too. So I'm like, okay, let's pick all the folktales with the female main characters and let's get rid of all the princes. This is all about women. <laughs> <laughs> and so these sketches are the sketches you did as a student and they actually do come into play. You really almost picked up from where you left off. Do you think that's true? Yeah, that, that was basically it because at the end of the um, ISP, I, like, I, knew, I knew all along I wanted it to be a collection of three. 
but I was being too ambitious and I was like, oh, I cannot finish all three before I graduate. So I ended up only finishing one. And then after graduating, I got distracted by trying to find a job, trying to be an adult. And so I had to pause for a bit. And now um, I picked it up again and now it's finally done. And Kat, I believe your graphic novel started with antiques. Yeah, but to give a little bit more background on that, after I graduated from art school, I'd always wanted to be published. So I created a bunch of other pitches, which my mindset back then was what is marketable? What can sell? And so I ended up creating a bunch of elementary school aged stories and middle grade stories. Middle grade is for ages, well, middle school, essentially. And I created a superhero pitch at one point in time too, and none of them were landing. And I thought, why aren't any of these landing? In retrospect, I'm really glad that people told me no for those pitches because I personally was not invested in them. I just wanted an entry into publishing. But after I thought about it for a while, I thought, what am I passionate about? I'm passionate about antiques. How can I transform this into a story? And that was how the idea for nostalgia came. Looks like we have a bunch of people in the chat who want to create and publish graphic novels like A Tale of VG. We have David who says, I love comics. To publish would be cool. Web comics as well. There are many options now because of the internet for how to get your comic out there. And it's crazy to me, Kat, that there's an actual store called this. I didn't know this until you were well into your book. Right. When I was thinking about antiques, I thought about my favorite antique shop, which is called Nostalgia, located near where I went to art school in Providence, Rhode Island. And so my whole book visually is based on this store. All right, let's talk about the publisher part, because actually this is one of the toughest parts. There's the making of the book, but you can't do anything until you actually get a publisher. So Clark, let's look at how you got your publisher. Can you walk us through what this website has to do with that? Right. So uh, like I mentioned before, after graduating, I kind of put a pause on the book and kind of just scampered around New York trying to figure out how to make a living. And one of the things I ended up doing was um, interning at Brooklyn, which is a nonprofit arts organization in New York. I thought, OK, this uh, I'll be exposed to different artists, get to learn zines, which I've always loved making. And so Brooklyn also has a web store where they sell zines of uh, by artists that they work with. So they were like, hey, if you make zines, we can like show some of yours. So I was like, yes, I do. Here it is. And then they showed my zine. And it just so happens that the one of the editors at Holiday House Publishing, she likes, she browsed, she browsed through it for some reason, I guess she just likes browsing random websites to look for potential artists. And she found my zine, um, tracked me down, found my website, got my email, emailed me. I thought it was spam, but no, she was a real person. <laughs> and so we got to talking and she asked, hey, are you interested in publishing by any chance? And I'm like, oh, I actually have a pitch ready, which I made during the ISP. And I, was, and I immediately sent it to her and she's like, cool, we want this. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kat, I think there's sometimes an assumption that you have to go to the publisher, but actually putting your work out there anywhere can create these pathways. Have you seen that, Kat? 
Absolutely. I think that applies to any opportunity in life. You have to make yourself available, right? And to do that, you have to put yourself out there. So in Clara's case, you were publishing in Brooklyn and your editor found you there. And Clara, I don't think you put yourself on that website to catch the eye of somebody. Did you put it there just because you could make a little bit of extra income? Was that the reason you put your work there? Um, yeah, I don't think it was even for income. I just thought like, why not? Because at that point, I got nothing going on. And it's like, you know, it might be fun if anything, like experience, and I could add this to my resume, maybe, hey, I was listed in this website. I can tell all of you don't underestimate the power of having your work somewhere other than your own website, because that's a completely different audience that you really can't reach on your own. People don't go online searching for me. They might find me on Etsy because they wanted a haunting figure drawing. And that's really the way people can find you is to be on other platforms. Now, Kat, you had a very different experience because you did it through just endless digging and networking and asking friends. How did that happen? My process is the opposite of Clara. So I reached out to publishers rather than somebody reaching out to me. And essentially, I just gathered a bunch of lists of emails, whether I found them on the internet, whether I asked a friend or whether I asked an ex-professor of mine. Eventually, I got enough emails to just send my, my pitch to all of them. And I got a lot of no's until I got a yes, finally. But I think that I did it out of order because I think I should have found an agent first before finding a publisher. And you can watch more about that on the stream here. I mean, I would take it. <laughs> the point <laughs> is that there's no specific order all of this has to happen in. Because yeah, typically people get an agent and their agent shops around the book, but whatever you can do to get your foot in the door, because I imagine Clara, that's the biggest hurdle is knowing somebody wants to invest in you. Did you find that stressful before you got the book deal? Yeah, because before I also uh, did a little bit of what Kat did, because um, I did reach out to like some publishers, you know, but um, but again, none of them were interested and I got discouraged. So I kind of I didn't pursue it with as much tenacity as Kat did, because I kind of like emailed a bunch of people and then gave up really quickly. Um, so yeah, I think persistence is also key in this case. Well, Lisa is asking right at first and Anna's asking, did you have to send a full draft to the publisher? So Kat, what was it for you? Well, to answer Lisa's question, I did write a pitch first and to Anna's question, that's also the same answer. I wrote a pitch first. So essentially that's about a few, a few pages that are complete five to 10 pages. I think I submitted about 10 pages. And then a little summary about what your whole book is going to be about. And other details such as world building illustrations or character designs, whatever you think is informative, you also include in your pitch package. And I sent that out to editors. Clara, I think what was terrific about your situation is you had the pitch. And when the publisher came to you, you said, yep, here it is. That's really important yeah. to note because some people say, oh, when I get to the publisher, then I'll really spend time on it. But no, if you have that thing and it's ready to go, I don't think she would have jumped on your idea as quickly if you were say, oh, I'm thinking about this. 
For sure. I think you need to strike a good balance between showing that you've done a lot of work, but also having the flexibility to kind of like go along with what the publisher is more interested in. They just need to know that you did the work and could do more work. Let's talk about image references and inspiration because both of you do lots of research trying to get visual images going, even trying to find things that are gonna influence your story. And sometimes you have to be very good at using Google <laughs> to get the images that you're really looking for. So Clara, on this page, you Googled Javanese royalty and Indonesian villages. How did you make those choices for those search terms? So um, I think uh, all three of the stories I included were based in Java. So kind of wanted to narrow it down in terms of like specific details that I want to include in the illustrations. I get very nitpicky and I get very anxious about like accuracy sometimes. So I was like, okay, it's gotta be specific to Javanese. I don't want like random Sulawesi design. Um, so it's like, Javanese royalty because one of the characters is also royalty. And there's also this. <laughs> I, <laughs> so when I first put this on the slide, Clara thought I edited this. I did not. I just found it on Google like this. Um, so a key of a, a large uh, cucumber plays a large role in one of my stories. So I searched cucumber patch. This was one of the images that first came up. And I was like, of course it is. <laughs> you put this in the slide for me but it turns out you really did use this no but it does sound like something i would do it's just someone beat me to it <laughs> and then we also have indonesian plants we have pumpkin patch so really getting specific because if you just google plants you're not really going to get something that is that specific to your story and so that research is very important we also have rice patty. And what about these images, Clark? Yeah, so uh, batik textile is one of my favorite things about Indonesian cultures because they have like such beautiful motifs and patterns. And a, a lot of these patterns also have meaning behind them. And there's also different types of design based on like region. So I also kind of included that in the details and like decisions I had behind character designs. So and. Um, just looking at them makes me feel good. I don't know. Like, this is a part of my culture that I'm really proud of. So I was like, I'm including that in my book. And for you, Kat, it actually wasn't all Google. You spent a lot of time on Etsy, which I would not have anticipated mm -hmm. because I would just go straight to Google. Why did you go to Etsy? As somebody who likes to frequent antique marketplaces, I know that the online market for antiques is concentrated on Etsy. I also find a bunch on Facebook Marketplace. Sometimes I know a location of a store and I look for that store's Facebook page because sometimes they'll post photos of their wares online. And I basically am doing window shopping <laughs> for objects to populate my imaginary antique shop with. Tell us in the chat, where are places online that you have gone to gather reference images? Maybe I'm just boring. I just go straight to Google, but apparently there are many things. I know a lot of people use Pinterest, but I think the more diverse your references are, the better. Because Clara, you're looking at so many different things and you're sort of mashing them all up. 
as opposed to just saying, okay, this one photo and I'm going to use that. Um, have you found that helpful, Clar, having such a diverse range of images? Yeah, for sure. Because if I'm only um, looking at like a small range of images, again, this is where my anxiety comes to play because I'm like, what if this isn't right? I need to collect as many references as I can so I can like average out, all right, what is the most accurate looking thing? And, you know, to also like, because I never know, maybe I can find like a better one here and a better one here and I can combine ideas. And finding reference photos takes time. People think you just Google something, but Kat, how much time do you think you spent finding references and assembling everything just before you start drawing? Hours, days, and weeks. <laughs> so long. And it takes up a lot of computer memory too because I'm saving a lot of those images. So what I end up doing is compress them all into one huge file <laughs> of all kinds of antiques. And sometimes I categorize them. I categorize them by toy or book or space in general. You know, I also go to antique shops. That's another great way to find references is go to the places where you can find the items you need. For Clara's case, you can't just hop on a plane and go to Indonesia whenever. So it makes more sense to find all of those sources online. But for my book, it made more sense for me to actually go to antique shops. We have a question from Katya. How do you keep the artwork in the book consistent? I've always been afraid of starting a book until my art is perfect because if I get better by the middle of the book, I would have to redo the start. Clara, any tips about that? Because every oh project, God. especially long-term ones, there's a learning curve as you make the project. This is my main problem too, because <laughs> every time, because I work in phases and uh, let's say I do all the sketches first, I'll do all the line arts, but as, I, as I'm about to finish the line art, I, get, I progressively get better. So I compare the last page to the first page and I'm like, last page is so much better. I gotta redo everything at the beginning. But then I'm like, okay, if I keep doing that, I'm never going to finish. So I think it's just uh, do, doing it in phases helps with the consistency because you don't go too far in between like, okay, I'm going to finish everything in page one. And then at the very end, finish everything in page 80. With like phases, it keeps like, like it helps with the consistency. And to be able to move forward with the perfectionism, you just got to make concessions and realize nobody can tell. Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody cares. The line is kind of wobbly. They can't tell. Only you can tell. Anna I want says, to add on to that and say it's inevitable. And you're just going to have to accept yeah. that your art's going to evolve while you make the book. I once read this one comic where the artist pulled screenshots of their main character at different phases of the book and said, look at all the evolutions. This chin is too angular. These cheeks are too chubby. What's going on here? And honestly, when I was reading the comic, I didn't even realize until the artist put that last page comparing everything. Anna's asking, I'm curious if anybody has seen graphic novels that are not pen and ink. That's all I've seen, but I'd really love to see a painted graphic novel or an oil pastel graphic novel. Do you work on the computer? Well, I think both of you do some degree of digital, although Clara, isn't your stuff all digital? Oh no, Mine it's not. You mostly, use the watercolors. I do. Um, so I, it's mostly digital um, for convenience sake and like to keep all my files together. I do lines and colors all digital, but I do miss the traditional aspects. So I add like watercolor textures on the backgrounds. 
And we'll see some slides of that later in the stream. And it's so fun, I think, Kat, to see the way things transform because you clearly have the reference, but oh boy, is that object different in your illustration? Right, I have full liberty to change it however it suits the image, right? Question from Tia Tia, do you color page by page or wait until you finish the whole story to do the coloring? Clara, how did you approach the coloring? Yeah, so I did the coloring absolutely last because the fear of my <laughs> evolving art was like, okay, I gotta make sure everything else is done so I can do all the color in like the smallest time frame possible to minimize the chances of you know, me not being consistent. So I do do it in stages, like finishing the stage before moving on to the next. And Kat, what's your process for coloring? I have not reached the coloring stage of my book yet. I'm actually still in the drafts page, uh, drafts section, but I imagine I would hop back and forth between penciling and inking and then coloring because if I do penciling the whole way through and then inking the whole way through and then coloring the whole way through, I'm going to get sick of all three of those processes. So I'm probably going to switch it up. All right, let's talk about character design because so much goes into the characters, not just in terms of their stories, but their look. And I think sometimes people underestimate character design, how much is involved with it. And also people put so much emphasis on the look of the character. But Clara, I'm sure you were thinking about this character's story and how the visual matches that. Can you explain that relationship a little bit? How to balance the look of the character versus the story? Um, I guess, uh, I don't know, I kind of work on like the look of the character and the story kind of simultaneously. So of course the story comes first and they're, eventually an image of the character comes up and as I'm about to like you know start sketching I want to you know, make sure I the ca character is solid before I commit to it and you know I rely on google images for reference my character designs also become some sort of reference for me to like keep going back to and also color palettes because it's pretty clear in this slide that each character has their own color scheme yeah so um each of uh, these characters, each of them are actually from different stories. So each story has its own color palette to differentiate between um, the stories. And this is also to help me with the coloring because I am a very indecisive person. If I hadn't done this, coloring would have taken me so much longer than it did. So I needed to, for me at least, I needed to decide this is the color I'm gonna use. So I needed to limit myself to those. And did you find these character sheets helpful as a reference? Yes, so helpful. Because sometimes I forget, like, how does this person look like when they're mad? And so I look at it and I'm like, ah, right, that was it. I imagine cat consistency has a lot to do with developing a solid character design from the get-go. Consistency is key. It's what makes a character recognizable, right? As it as you go, as you move through the story. I think for my case, I try to identify key characteristics that I have to include all the time. So for instance, this is my character, Fran. She always wears this headband. But there are also smaller characteristics that 
you might not even notice, but I know, such as her noise, her nose is pointed down and her nostrils not visible. So that's sort of a visual rule I follow. Whereas if you look at Vince, his nose is tilted up a little bit and you do see his nostril. So there are all these teeny tiny rules for each character that you have to be very careful to follow. And Kat, I think this is based on somebody you knew in middle school? Yeah, it was based on this really short boy classmate I had who always wore a shark's hoodie. For anybody who doesn't know what that is, that's a hockey team. And those sweatshirts are always this electric blue. And I thought that was such a key visual to that person that I wanted to include that visual also for my character. Well, that makes me wonder, Clar, are your characters, are they people you just made up or do they have characteristics that are from people you know? I think some of them I did pull characteristics from people I know and then others are like subconsciously I did because I think Kat it was you who mentioned that one of them kind of looked like me and I was like wait a second and <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know I'm familiar with certain things and sometimes it shows in my drawings. All right let's talk about the drawing process because I've always looked at graphic novels and thought that they are absolute Herculean efforts. The number of drawings, all the coloring, the panels, the compositions. Kat, how do you handle that? Because for a lot of people, it's very overwhelming. It's such a monumental task. This is kind of a double-edged sword, but what has helped me is being reliant on the schedule of my editor slash publishing house <laughs> because you submit something and then you have to wait until they get back to you with their modifications, with their advice, etc. And that's sort of your rest period or at least the period where you get to take a break from your novel and do something else such as earn a living. <laughs> but then when you come back, you kind of feel revitalized and ready to approach this work once again. And so even though it is long, we are pacing ourselves and sometimes it's not by choice. Sometimes it's on the whim of the publisher, but that's a method that does help. Tell us in the chat, who here has tricks or hacks in order to stay on track? Because Clara, I have to imagine with how much is involved with just one page. I mean, I feel like I would lose my attention span really quickly and we all have to find a reason to stay the course. And so how did you do that? Did you also just say, okay, editor deadlines, this is it? Or were there other forms of motivation? Um, so like having my editor around was also, uh, uh, it also helped me, but in a way where I tell my editor, hey, can you like give me a deadline for this? Because I need someone to keep me accountable because mm -hmm. self-discipline is something that sometimes I have trouble with, so I'm like, I need someone to shame me into working. And I'm also a very type A person, so when I like lay it out like in a detailed schedule, I get satisfaction from checking things off lists, so I make a lot of lists to like push myself from, to like, all right, gotta keep going. And Clara, I've always loved that you have skills in both traditional and digital media. And what I get really excited about is seeing you merge the two because so often they are done separately. So tell us what we're looking at here, this page of watercolors. Yes, yeah, so these are um, 
like watercolor and like ink texture slash drawing that I knew as I was like writing the story, I was like, oh, this would be a really cool effect to have at this moment. So there are just certain scenes that I feel like would be enhanced with like textures that I wouldn't be able to get on digital media. And this would also solve my whole dilemma of like, oh, I miss traditional and I wanna like combine it with the convenience of digital. Yeah, and I believe this thumbnail from 2018, you just picked it up and it's right over here on the left. <laughs> Is that strange to have several years in between or was it easy? <laughs> um, it only just occurred to me lately that it has been that long because I don't know, time is blurry, man. So I was just like, oh, all right, I'll, let me just pick it back up. And then I realized, wait a second, I started this four years ago. So to me, it didn't feel like it was that long. It felt natural to just be like, all right, time to press play on this again. Well, because one thing that I think people don't realize is even if you have an idea, you got a pitch, you got the green light from the publisher, it takes years to get a book published. Is that accurate, Kat? Oh yeah, I think that actually is kind of a wake up call for a lot of people once they get their foot through the door and then they realize, oh my gosh, this is gonna take many more years for it to be made and perhaps even another year or even more to get it published now into the world. And so it's all, it's really frustrating because you do all this work and it hurts you to not show it to the world. <laughs> it hurts for it not to be published right then and there, but it's all about patience and waiting and pacing and also knowing that you don't have to focus on this work solely you can also be doing other things right I mean you both have jobs and other commitments you sort of can't just throw down everything and just focus I feel like I would go crazy Clara would you yeah I I, I do need to jump back and forth between projects because yeah, I sometimes it's, I've stared at something way too long and then I start hating it or I start like getting in a rut. So I'm like, okay, I need a breather from this for a second. Here is my poster child for thumbnail sketches because I think cat people look at the final ink drawing, which we're seeing here, and it's just so captivating and vivid and beautiful and yet it started out with that little tidy sketch thumbnails are a huge part of your process right and i think clara also goes through the same process in that you thumbnail every single page of your book before you actually draw your book and the big thing about comics is that you have to draw and you have to redraw it's a lot of work actually clara you and I did a stream where I was trying to teach you how to do comics and you were complaining that you were it. redrawing your comic too many times. And I thought, come on, Clara, it's only the third redraw. And by then I thought, you know what? It has been the third time. I guess this is a lot for some people. <laughs> and it's remarkable how sure the final pen version here is so beautifully detailed, but the core essence of the composition, where the panels are, how big the house is. Because Clara, I actually think panels in a comic are very hard to do and people forget how critical they are to the composition. It is, like when you're reading a graphic novel, you don't really think about the panels. It's just like your eyes just naturally flow through it with like really thinking. But as you're making it, it's like, what kind of panel do I want to add here? Do I want to put it here? Do I want to combine it with this panel? Do I want diagonal lines or do I want it straight? There's just a lot of decision-making involved. 
We have a question here from AA, wondering if there are any red flags for publishers. Did you all come across scammers in your publishing journey? Unfortunately, scammers are everywhere and you have to watch out for that. You have to protect yourself. Really, you have to dig up stuff on people. For example, Clar, when you got the email from your publisher, I think you didn't believe it right away. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I was like, I treat everything as a red flag. Because I just get scared very easily. So when I got the email, I was like, oh, no, she's trying to scam me out of some money. But I did some Googling. So that's also a part of, um, you know, your due diligence whenever you get, like, random emails or if, like, some publisher reach out to you. So I made sure she's a real person. She actually works at the place she said she works at. She has a LinkedIn. So I was like, all right, it is safe to do a video call with her. Mm -hmm. Quick Synth says, do you ever imagine your graphic novels being adapted as an animation and who might voice over some of your characters? Has that crossed your mind, Kat? I can't say it hasn't. It's definitely something I've vaguely touched the edges of, but something that draws me to the comic format is the medium itself. I think that there is a lot of essence and purity in the comic format. And there's a reason why I want to tell the story through a comic versus if I wanted to tell the story through an animation. So it's good to note that if your story transcends those borders into another medium, your story essentially changes to be able to suit that medium. So you got to understand what medium is best suited to tell my story. And if this story translates across another medium, how will that story change? Tale of VG says, how large are your novels? How many pages? Well, Clara, yours is done. <sighs> Cat's still in the middle. Can you give us some numbers? Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, if I'm not mistaken, the final copy will be like um, a close book would be seven by nine. And how many pages? It's um, 80 things spreads. So it's like 160, 170 total with like everything. Um, and also jumping back to the animation comment, yes, I also think of my comics as animation because I'm also an animator, so I think both in panels and in motion. So when I'm drawing, I'm like, oh, I can see this moving and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Tali says, Kat, what types of things would you recommend to do in between a large comic graphic novel project? Literally anything you want to do, but I will say some things that really helped me was I actually made a bunch of illustrations for my comic slash graphic novel. Like I made a holiday card. I made just illustrations just to have fun and to get myself acquainted to the visual style of the story. I actually have not officially started drawing the book yet because again, I'm still in the drafts phase. So I was just trying to have fun with the story, but not just yet with the comic. And other things you can pursue, or I don't know, I, I plant a lot of plants. I have a plant army. I, I counted. I have 22 plants. It's great. You have more <laughs> than me now. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ginger's asking, what's your favorite part about making a comic? What is it for you, Clark? Um, I think it's the fact that I Okay, this is kind of like my favorite and also least favorite. It's like the fact that I get to draw a lot of things. So it's like, it's good because I'm, sometimes when I want to illustrate something, I want to illustrate different angles. I want to include like details about this. But with the comic, I can include all of that in a single page. But that's also like the bad part because I'm like, oh, extra drawing. Can I also answer that question? <laughs> 
my favorite part about making comics is that I can curate literally every part of it because I write the story, I write the dialogue, I design the characters, the layout, the camera angle, how many pages it's supposed to be. And so I feel that it's a work that's truly my own. But what I like and also dislike about making a long form comic is that you discover a lot of things about yourself. Because if you are working on a project that is that long, <laughs> you're going to realize that some things about your own life are going to come through into the story. And you are forced to kind of come to terms and face it and think, why am I writing such a long story about this? <laughs> Sounds deep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Maybe that's why I can't write one. Crises. <laughs> right. <laughs> Televigi says, how long does it take you to complete a graphic novel? How often per day a week do you get to work on it? Well, Clara, since you've gone the full arc, how much did you, let's just say ballpark each week, how much did you work on it? Um, so it, towards the end, a lot because I was facing a deadline, but in between it varies. It depends on the mood sometimes where it's like, okay, let me do once a week but then there are times where i feel the pressure and it's like i, I gotta do at least two hours a day so it really it, it depends on how you feel about it because sometimes if you force yourself to do like every day but you don't feel it it's not going to come out great cat do you have a schedule or is it just i feel like it i feel like it up until i realize a deadline is approaching <laughs> and then i spend a long time on it literally every single hour of free time I have outside of my job I'm working on my book if I have a deadline but if I don't have a deadline it's just whatever I feel like it <laughs> so basically nothing would ever get done if none of us had deadlines because I'm the same way if I don't have that kick in the butt <laughs> it's hard for me to justify keeping going with that we do have other streams regarding graphic novels, how to start a career in illustration. We also have an artist curriculum for comics, if you would like to get some tips on how to make your own comic. And we just opened registration today for two premium workshops. They are both in November. The first one is Drawing Animals and Color. The second one is on selling your art. These are one day workshops. They are two to three hours. They're $60. It's a great way to get insight on your work that is customized to your own experience. This Google Slideshow is available. The link is in the YouTube video description below. You can access all of them on artprof.org. Please join Kat and I immediately after the stream. We will be doing a stage session in our Discord. A stage session is where you get to chat with us on voice. We have so much fun hearing from everybody, so please hang out with us there right afterwards. There are many ways you can support ArtProf. For example, you can make a one-time donation via PayPal. You can purchase an artist call. These are really helpful, especially if you are feeling like you need something really specific to your situation. Thank you to our top Patreon supporters. And I want to just say we have a new supporter today, Sonia Monikoski. Thank you so much for joining that group because this group is our rock for keeping ArtProf up and running. And yay, we went up $27 this week. I'm so happy because we went down 100 last week, which made me really sad. So this is an improvement, but it can still go up, everybody. So help us with our Patreon goal. 
And remember, our prop has a podcast. It's available on Spotify and also on iTunes. And subscribe to our channel for more art tutorials, critiques, and business tips. Everybody, thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Bye.